So Daniel chapter 10, I will read the whole chapter plus one extra, you get a bonus verse. Just think of it that way. It's a bonus verse. I'll read you chapter 10 and you get chapter 11 verse 1 as, as dessert, as a bonus. So please give your attention as God's holy inspired and errant word is read. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now in the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz, whose body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell upon them, so, they, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision. And no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days." For the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. 
No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, Jesus, as he was getting ready to depart this world and go to the cross, he took his disciples aside and taught them about his return in his Olivet Discourse. He told his disciples, this is in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, he told his disciples there that the period of world history leading up to his return would be one marked by wars and rumors of war. He says that in Matthew 24, 6. And when you look at the world around us today, what do you see? Well, you see a world rocked by wars and rumors of war. In fact, as long as human beings have been alive and been around on this planet, you have seen a world dominated by wars and rumors of war. But that, while we see that in our news feeds and whatever throughout the world, what we often don't consider is the spiritual truth behind that physical or natural reality. Because what we see as wars and, spirit, and, and, and rumors of war are really just an outworking of a greater spiritual warfare. Now you hear that, of course, and we pay lip service to the, uh, the concept of spiritual warfare. But the truth of the matter is, I believe we give far too little credence to the idea of spiritual warfare. But the Bible is quite clear that behind the conflicts you see in the world today are spiritual forces of good and evil doing battle. And then that has an outworking in what you see in the world around us. And that's what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 10. Spiritual warfare that is reflected in worldly conflict. Now as we come to chapter 10 of Daniel, we are in the home stretch. Okay, This is the last major section of Daniel. The last major vision that he has. And this vision will cover chapters 10, 11, and 12. So it's a long, detailed vision. And he receives this detailed vision of world history leading from his own time all the way to the end of history. Now in this vision, particularly in chapter 11, we're going to see some repeated material that we saw in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But in the first part of this vision that we see here in chapter 10, Daniel gets a visit from an angelic messenger who reveals to him the truth of this spiritual warfare or this heavenly conflict. And as we go through this passage this morning, what I hope that we see is this, that we can find encouragement in dark times because Christ has overcome the world. That we can find encouragement in these dark times of spiritual warfare and worldly conflict because Christ has overcome the world. Now first, we see in verses 1-3 through a vision received. A vision received. As with other visions in Daniel, we're told that the vision that occupies chapters 10-12 through occurred in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in verse 1. Now the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, would make it, on our calendars, 
the year 536 B.C. Now again, if you remember from way back in the beginning, Daniel was exiled to Babylon in the year 605 B.C. So if you do the math, you subtract, carry the one, make sure you do all the right math. Daniel is probably about 84 years old at this time. Daniel is an older gentleman now, having spent the vast majority of his life in Babylon. And it's at that time that Daniel, in in Daniel's life, that he receives a message. A message was revealed to him, and that message is marked as true. The word was true. Now in verse 1, I believe we have, in my opinion, an unfortunate translation. Because the New King James reads in verse 1, where it says, the message was true, but the appointed time was long. Now you might have a footnote there that says, or and of great conflict. Now the New King James is following the King James in this translation, but every other major translation, ESV, New, uh, New International Version, New, uh, New American Standard, Christian Standard Bible, has something like this, and it was about a great conflict. And I think that's the proper translation because the original Hebrew there uses the word for war or conflict. And given the context of what we're going to see in chapters 10 through 12, this vision is of a great conflict. Now, it might be helpful here to know a little bit about the historical context that we see ourselves here in. Because this, Daniel says this is the third year of Cyrus. Now, if you remember the first year of Cyrus, which would have been 538 B.C., when Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire, he issued a decree. And we looked at this last week. He issued a decree that allowed for the Jews to go back to their homeland. We saw that. You can read that in Ezra chapter 1, the first three verses. He issues a decree sending the Jews back to their homeland to allow them to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. That was the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, two years later. And we also know through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that there was great conflict and great opposition to the rebuilding project. So the rebuilding project stalled. It started off great, but then it stalled because of opposition. And this would be a time of great discouragement for God's people, right? You think things are looking up? The 70 years of captivity are over. We're returning to our homeland. We get to rebuild our city. We get to rebuild our temple. And all of a sudden, wham, people come up and they oppose the rebuilding project. You run smack into the brick wall of opposition. It is in this period of time where there's great discouragement amongst God's people as they are greatly discouraged because they cannot rebuild their temple. That's when Daniel receives a true word about a great conflict. Now the circumstances of what's going on in the world of God's people uh, and the vision that Daniel here receives take a great toll on him. We see that in verses 2 and 3 where Daniel was in mourning. And he was in mourning for three full weeks. He, he ate no pleasant food. He said no meat or wine came into my mouth. I didn't anoint myself at all until three whole weeks for, were fulfilled. So he goes on a kind of a semi-fast and he forgoes all creature comforts as he struggles with the vision that he received and the plight of his people. 
kind of what we see Daniel doing here is he's empathizing with, with the people, with the plight of his people, right? I mean, Daniel's living in relative luxury in the capital of the Persian Empire. It'd be very easy for him to say, oh, those poor people back in Jerusalem. Oh, I feel so sorry for them. And then he goes on drinking wine, eating meat, and just kind of having a grand old time. No, Daniel is empathizing, and he's, he's identifying with the plight of his people. Which raises a question for us. How much do we actually empathize with the plight of God's people throughout the world? Because you see, the church of Jesus Christ is much bigger than Emmanuel Reformed Church. Right? We can empathize with people in our church, right? We can empathize with our neighbors. We can empathize with our friends and our family members. When someone is having a hard time here, it's, it's not unusual to see other people in our church kind of rally around that person and bring them meals or help them through a tough situation. And that's all well and good. But that's within our church walls here, right? How much do we empathize with people outside of the church? People in churches across the world, right? Because the church of Jesus Christ is much bigger than Emmanuel Reformed Church. The church of Jesus Christ is much bigger than the RCUS. The church of Jesus Christ is much bigger than other churches which have a like faith and practice as ours. The church of Jesus Christ encompasses all people who call upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith. And there are many places throughout this world where the church of Jesus Christ is under severe persecution, where it is under severe opposition, where they can't even meet in public for fear of persecution. So what Daniel is doing should also call our attention to the plight of these saints in the worldwide church. Well, now we move on to verses 4-9 through nine as first Daniel receives a vision. Now we see a messenger revealed. And as we get to verse 4, it's now three weeks later. It is the 24th day of the first month. Now maybe you might be thinking, well, okay, that's nice. What's the 24th day of the first month? It means nothing to me. But if you know your Old Testament, the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the, fourth month, or the first month. So that means that Daniel's period of fasting and mourning for three full weeks started before the Passover and carried its way through the Passover till sometime after the Passover. Now the Passover was a momentous occasion because it celebrated the greatest act of, of salvation and deliverance in the Old Testament people of God. Right, The Passover marked their, their delivery out of Egypt and how God brought them through the wilderness to the promised land. And they celebrated. When the, when the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea, they sang a song of celebration, celebrating the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God as He delivered His people from the wickedness of the Egyptian nation. So here, Daniel is still praying and fasting and mourning all the way through this period of great celebration. It's almost as if God, he is praying to God, God, will you do another act of great deliverance and salvation to save your people? So as he's doing this, three weeks later, Daniel here is, finds himself by the side of the Tigris River. He looks up and he sees a heavenly messenger in verses 5 and 6. 
where we read, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So in the midst of Daniel's period of lamenting the fate of his people, he gets a visit from a figure that can only be described by one word. It is a glorious figure here. The idea that this this messenger is clothed in linen calls to mind the priestly garb. The priests would wear uh, linen clothing, uh, linen ephod, as they would go serve in the temple. And then we see that this uh, messenger has a golden sash his body is composed of precious, priceless jewels. He has a face like lightning, eyes like fire, limbs like bronze. All of this presents a very striking figure indeed to Daniel. Now you may hear this wonderful description of this messenger and you may think, well, who is this messenger? And many scholars believe this messenger to be the figure of the angel of the Lord. If you know anything, again, of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. A pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. Now this seems to be backed up by Daniel's reaction to seeing this messenger and how we see similar language used in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12-16 through 16 in that passage. John receives a vision of the exalted Jesus Christ. And the description of Jesus Christ in that vision is very similar to the description of this heavenly messenger here in Daniel 10. But, so hopefully you didn't write those notes in your Bible that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God because I believe that it is not a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. As we'll see in verse 13, this messenger had been withstood 21 days by someone identified as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Which leads me to question, how can the pre-incarnate Son of God be withstood by a mere creature? God is the creator. We are the creature. The, the, if, if this image, if this messenger is the pre-incarnate Son of God, he should not be withstood by a mere creature. So if this glorious messenger is not the pre-incarnate Christ, then who is he? He is obviously an angel, but not your average one-of-the-mill angel. Well, one commentator I read, a man named Ian Duguid, writes a very nice commentary on Daniel. I believe he makes a rather convincing argument that this angel is one of the cherubim. One of the cherubim. This is a sort of like a special class of angel. The cherubim are those who serve closely to God. They guard His glory and they, they are His, his like number one attendants, right? Uh, if you recall in our study through the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4, we get a vision of the heavenly throne room. And before the throne are four living creatures that are described with various animal faces and eyes all over and wings and all this stuff. These are the cherubim. These are the ones who serve at the throne of God. And again, you see in uh, the first chapter of Ezekiel, the chapter 1, verses 4 and following, 
You see this heavenly throne being moved throughout the earth. It's being carried by the four cherubim. And again, they're described as having faces like men and animals and wings and eyes all over. And these angels carry this chariot all around the earth. Not to mention in Ezekiel, the description of the cherubim is very much similar to what we see here in Daniel 10. So my, my argument is that this is a cherubim. But beyond that, more importantly, is Daniel's reaction to the heavenly messenger, as you see this in verses 7-9. through nine. Daniel recounts how he alone saw the vision, and those around him, when they heard the words, they, they were filled with terror and they fled away. And at the sound of the angel's words, Daniel becomes an emotional and physical mess. He says his strength failed him. His appearance lost its radiance. He falls to the ground in a deep sleep. And let's also not forget that Daniel is already in a kind of weakened state to begin with because he's been fasting for three weeks. But in this frightening moment, Daniel was about to be reassured that his God had not forgotten about him or his people. This angelic messenger was going to reveal to Daniel how God who is sovereign over kings and nations, will guard and preserve his people through their darkest times. So now moving on to verses 10 through 14, we see a conflict foretold. While Daniel was at his weakest point, both spiritually and physically, the angelic messenger reaches out his hand to touch Daniel. Now this is sometimes how God works, right? Sometimes God answers our prayers immediately. Sometimes God seemingly waits. And that's what's frustrating for us, right? Because when we pray, we want an answer when? Now, if not yesterday, right? We want God to answer our prayers now, and sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers on our timing. And we need to be okay with that because God's timing is not our timing. In fact, sometimes God waits until we're at a weakest point before He answers and acts. And that's a reminder to us that we, what we cannot do in our own strength, God can do. And here the angel touches Daniel, which causes even more fear and trembling. But then the angel says, uh, he reassures Daniel by telling him two things. First, he says, Daniel, you are greatly loved by God. I may have mentioned this last week, but Daniel is one of the few figures in the entire Bible of whom nothing bad is said. Not that he's sinless, but that the Bible describes him as sort of like a paragon of faith, as an example of faith, as someone that we should look up to and imitate as a faithful man, a man living in a hostile world. Here he is maintaining his integrity through 84 years of life living in Babylon and then in Persia, faithful in a hostile world. But he also reassures Daniel by telling him that he himself, this mighty cherubim, this glorious figure that Daniel trembled at the sight of, had been sent by God to him. In the midst of Daniel's fear and trembling, God has heard and answered his prayer. So the angel tells the purpose for which he has been sent in verses 12 through 14 as we read here. 
Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have, been sent, I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. So just like we saw last time in chapter 9, from the first day Daniel started to pray, God had answered his prayer. God had sent a messenger and, and dispatched an angel to answer Daniel's prayer. Now note too how the angel commends Daniel's motivation where Daniel wanted to understand this vision, how, how it had pertained to his people, what it meant for his people. And Daniel did so from a posture of humility. He humbled himself before God. That's why we see why Daniel was greatly loved. Now you might be wondering why if God heard Daniel's prayer from the first day he started to utter it, did it take three weeks for the angel to come to him? And that answer is given in verse 13. We see here, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood the angelic messenger for 21 days. And it was only when Michael, one of the chief princes, an archangel, the archangel Michael, came to help that the angel then was able to come to Daniel with the answer. So what's going on here? What's going on with the, these three verses? I think the answer is quite simple. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Because the prince of the kingdom of Persia is not an actual human prince, but really a demon, one of Satan's fallen angels who works to oppose the purposes of God and who works to oppose the people of God and make things difficult for us. This particular demon had sway over the kingdom of Persia, which suggests a far greater truth that sometimes we tend to forget in this world. Behind the events we see happening on earth is a great spiritual conflict. And this spiritual conflict has ramifications in the natural or physical world. Again, remember, Daniel is praying during a time where the rebuilding project in Jerusalem had been stalled. Now, in Daniel's mind, the stalling was because human people had risen up to oppose the work that was being done in Jerusalem. But what we're being told here is that there are powerful, evil spiritual forces at work who are behind all of this. The same thing holds true for the church today. Problems within the church, whether you have that rebellious church member or that sort of combative church officer, aren't just problems with those people. The problems in the church isn't just a culture that is post-Christian. The problems in the church isn't just a government that is set on marginalizing the church or even destroying the church. Because behind all these cases lie spiritual forces in battle and in warfare. And this is a spiritual warfare that the Bible warns us about and against which we are to stand firm. So finally, we see in verses 15 through 21, a prophet comforted. When Daniel hears that there are these great spiritual forces arrayed against him, he despairs all the more. What can Daniel possibly do 
against this prince of the kingdom of Persia? What can Daniel possibly do with these spiritual, you know, these the, this array of spiritual forces against him? And same thing for us. What can we possibly do against the spiritual forces of evil that are behind everything we see in the world? Well, for the third time in the passage, the angel comes and comforts Daniel and encourages him in verses 18 and 19. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to you, be strong, yes, be strong. So again, he reminds him here, you are greatly loved by God. And what happens, what can possibly happen to the one that is loved by God? Right? Romans 8. What can possibly separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord? So he is greatly loved. He's not only greatly loved, but then he tells him, be strong, fear not, be at peace. Kind of similar to what Joshua heard, right? Joshua, who was Moses' successor, is about to go into the land of Canaan after they have been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And he's, he's, frightful. he's frightened. He's fearful. How can I lead this whole army? How can I attack these enemies that are arrayed against God's people? And he gets, God tells him, he's like, fear not, Joshua. Be strong. I am with you. Then the angel asks Daniel a question in, verses, in verse 20. He says, do you know why I've come to you, Daniel? Now the question is a bit rhetorical, but the angel came to comfort and strengthen Daniel and to make known to him of the great conflict that is coming. And for that, you have to come next week. So there's your incentive to come next week to hear about this great conflict, because it's mostly in chapter 11. But then notice what the angel says after that. He says, I have to go back and fight with the prince of Persia. And then after him will come the prince of Greece. And that's going to occupy most of chapter 11. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because we know the rest of history. Who comes up after Greece? Well, it's Rome. Who comes up after Rome? Well, the barbarians come and they destroy Rome. Well, who comes after the barbarians? Well, it's the Arabs who come and destroy most of Europe. In other words, evil never sleeps. This great conflict is one that has shaped all of redemptive history and will continue to shape all of redemptive history until Christ returns. And then we can reference that great vision in Daniel 7, where as these great beasts come up out of the sea, we see the kingdom of the Son of Man. When the kingdom of the Son of Man comes, He will crush the kingdoms of the world. Until then, fear not. Be at peace and be strong. So I asked earlier, what can we do in this battle against the spiritual forces of evil in the world? Well, first we can, we can take heart by remembering the words that John speaks in 1 John 4, verse 4, where he says, He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Because we don't battle Satan and his demons in our own strength. Because if we were to do so, we would fail. But we are to battle Satan and his demons, as Paul says in Ephesians, in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now the enemy likes to use two ways to sort of derail and distract us in our spiritual warfare. The first way is to get us thinking that the devil is everywhere. 
that He is behind every bush, uh, behind every tree, under every bed, so we get wrapped up in seeing demons here, demons there, demons everywhere. And then we get into a mode of fright and, uh, fright and immobility, fear and inaction. Because there's demons everywhere. We see them everywhere. The second way that Satan and his demons like to distract us and derail us is to get us thinking that the devil doesn't exist at all. And this is what we see predominantly in our culture today. We ignore the devil. We scoff at all this talk about the supernatural and spiritual warfare. And our natural skepticism starts to kick in. So instead of Satan being a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, Satan becomes now an angel of light. Right? And think about all of the false teachers that you see in the world, these angels of light that preach a false gospel and seem to have these large followings. So either we think their demons are everywhere or demons are nowhere. And you know what? The, de- the devil is happy with either error. He is happy with either error. So the key in our spiritual warfare then is that's to understand how we are victorious in spiritual warfare is to understand that Satan and his demons are defeated enemies. They were defeated finally and definitively at the cross. That's why in the New Testament we can read and hear in the book of Hebrews that through death Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. What the author of Hebrews is saying there is that Christ came to destroy the powers of evil. He achieved the final victory at the cross. The devil is a defeated enemy. And then later on in Colossians 2.15, Paul writes, having disarmed principalities and powers, those are just words that talk about the hierarchy of demonic forces, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. As a defeated enemy, Satan can sometimes be even more dangerous and scary, right? You know, a wounded animal sometimes is very dangerous. But Satan cannot destroy the one who is in Christ by faith. Again, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if you're not in Christ by faith, then you are probably a casualty of war in this spiritual conflict. But all hope is not lost because, again, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. The author of Hebrews refers often back to the wilderness generation, the Exodus generation. And what do you see of the wilderness generation as they were going from Egypt to the Promised Land? Constant rebellion, right? Constant complaining and, and moaning and groaning and, and rebellion. And every, time, every so often, God would judge His rebellious people. And the author of Hebrews uses that now to say, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts like they did back then. So if right now you are hearing the voice of Christ through His Holy Spirit calling to you, do not harden your heart. Repent of your sins, which are an offense against the Holy God, and turn to Christ in faith. Because God sent His only beloved Son into the world so that you don't have to die, that you may believe in Him and not perish, but have life eternal. Because it is only in Christ that we can overcome the world and the forces of evil in spiritual warfare. Because Christ has overcome the world, 
and we are overcomers in Him. Let's pray.